0: this podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and fpcgulfport on youtube now in preparing for today's study occurred to me that an object lesson might be helpful let's say that you were to walk into a a kindergartens class. We have a number of school teachers in our midst, and let's say that you were to go to a a kindergarten class and you brought with you two trays of food. Now let's say one of those trays was donuts, something that everyone loves. Everyone loves a donut. When we came to the coast, they told us, go to Ocean Springs, go to Tato Nuts, and you'll have the best donuts around. And we agree, that's that's been a good find. Now let's say you have a tray of donuts, Tato Nuts, what have you, and let's say in the other hand, you have a tray of vegetables, something that is less desirable than the donuts. Now, if you go to the kindergarten class and you call the children's attention and you set both trays before them, and then you say, come and get it, which tray is going to be emptied fastest? You know the answer without me even asking the question. What's going to happen is that the kids are going to run to the donuts, they're going to devour the donuts, there'll be a spinning tray left, and there'll be a lot of vegetables that remain. Now lest you think that that's, I'm just picking on kindergartners here, this would be true of us as well. There's a reason for Sunday school we set out donuts and not vegetables on Sunday morning. This is just true of the human condition. We go to those things, we we grab and we eat and we consume that which our bodies want. And our bodies prefer a very and cream over Brussels sprouts and, and the like. With that said, let's take that same example, but change the setting. Let's say that you took the same two trays. Let's say you got the tray of, of the donuts, you got the tray of the vegetables, but let's say instead of bringing it to kindergartners, Let's say that you took these two trays and you went to an Olympic qualifying event. You went to the Olympics and you took the trays and you set them down and you invited all of the athletes who were preparing to compete that day to dine, to pick whatever they would want. So you all got athletes that are ready to partake, they're ready to compete, they're getting ready for all the events, and you set before them the donuts and the vegetables. Which are they going to eat? Well, I had to tell you this much. Whichever tray they choose from is probably going to be a function of that which they perceive is going to be most helpful to them in the pursuit of their goals. Athletes tend to consume from those foods which will help them to compete. The choices are going to be a function of their goals and not necessarily their flesh. It's going to be a function of their objectives and not necessarily what they might want, all things being equal. Now today's text in Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul is going to say something similar of us as Christians. As Christians, our wants, our desires, the things that our flesh dictates should not necessarily drive our actions and their choices, but they usually do. We take the goals and the objectives that we have and we follow them a part of the time, but those moments when we have opportunities to pursue something that is the spiritual equivalent of donuts, that's exactly what we do. Well, Paul said last week, he says, stop. Last week, remember what he said. He says, look, we're running a race here. We're running a race, and the race is not going to be won by those eating the spiritual equivalent of donuts. Last week he says this. He says, we're supposed to press forward, press on, press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Throughout his epistles, Paul regularly used this sort of athletic analogies. He used competition and words like goals and prize and running and striving and fighting. He did all that to tell you and I that our Christian walk is a function of habitually making spiritually healthy choices. Habitually picking, so to speak, from the healthy option that is presented for us. The spiritually right, good, godly thing to do. He says, press on. He says, this is what the Christian walk is supposed to look like. Now, in today's text, he is going to describe the opposite approach. He's going to say, look, there are some in the greater church, there's some in the visible church, who claim and profess to be following the God of heaven. But he says, if you watch their attitudes, watch their choices, watch which tray they, they pick from, so to speak, you'll find that their God is not the God of heaven, Their God is their belly. This is his language in order to describe the mentality we have to choose bad, awful, terrible things that we ought not have and to habitually select from those things rather than picking that which is good and right. And he says, Look, if this is your habit, if you you are consistently choosing that which you ought not choose, if your God is your your belly, then know this your end is destruction. He says, "There, There are some who walk. Who you stand back? And well, they got a profession. They sign the name in the back of the Bible. They don't seem to be living accordingly, but God bless them, they're saved. And Paul says, not so fast. He says, there's some who walk They might call out to the God of heaven, but if you watch their choices, their choices reflect a God of the belly, a God of the flesh, a God of wants and desires, and flesh rather than of faith. Let's see what he has to say about things. He's going to speak to that for a portion of our time, and then he's going to transition and point us skyward. Let's look at verse 17 of our text and then work our way forward. Verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have us, For a pattern. All right, in verse 17, the Apostle Paul acknowledges a fact that is true across all of humanity. And the fact is this, we are all prone to imitating someone else. We are all prone to imitating others. It's part of the composition of our character. If someone was to look at who you are, they would undoubtedly see in you shades or characteristics of others. Those that you've learned to emulate. The most basic example is if you have a child who adopts an accent. In all likelihood, that accent, whatever it is, is a function of the accent of one's parents or family or community. That's a simple way to express what it's like to imitate. Even in our affectations, in our speech, we do this. We also do it in our behaviors. We also do it in our choices. In Philippi, the people there were going to imitate somebody... Christianity was a new thing. This was not centuries old in Philippi. They had to look for examples to show them how this works. The problem is they were looking to the wrong examples. The problem is that they needed a pattern. We're all inclined to follow patterns, but the Philippians, in many cases, were beginning to look to those who were not demonstrating a good pattern. Well, in verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, look, you've got to consider who it is you're imitating. And then he uses himself, but not only himself. He talks about us. He says, look, there's a number of us that are worthy of imitating. If you're going to have to follow somebody, look to my friend Epaphroditus. He's one of you. He's a Philippian. Look to him. That guy's awesome. He knows what he's doing. Look to him. Or Timothy. Timothy, oh, Timothy is a great example of what it's like to know and follow Jesus. But whatever you do... Consider those that are teaching and leading you in the faith and choose to follow those whose lives most line up with this, with God's word and will and decree. Let me stop right now and ask you a related question. What examples are guiding your own Christian walk? Some are. Maybe there are those that we've loved who have since passed, but somewhere there are those in the past or the present who are guiding your Christian walk. Who are they? What was the outcome of their walk, good or bad? Who are those who have given you examples by which you are imitating, and are they healthy examples to imitate? Second question, what kind of example are you being to others? What example are you being to those in your life, to those in your family, to wives and children and husbands and spouses and parents and cousins and nephews and friends, co-workers and the like? People are not only going to learn doctrine. But they also learn by watching and observing how others practice their faith. How are you demonstrating that faith? And what are those that God has entrusted in your care, seeing in you, that will lead them to a more faithful walk in the time yet to come? Let's look at verses 18 and 19. Verse 18, for many walk, of whom I have told you often, and tell you now even weeping. This doesn't do Paul any, he's not happy about this. He's genuinely sad about those who've gone astray. He says many walk, not a couple, not one guy down in the city, not two or five or even ten, many. There's many who walk, as I told you before, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Destruction. Whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. All right, verses 18 and 19. Paul's already talked about bad examples and good examples. He's talked about what it is to imitate. Well, here, he's giving you some examples of those who are walking the wrong direction. He's giving us bad examples, and he's saying, look, there are some, and you will know them, you will know them by these attributes. And he describes some of the things that they do. And he also talks about the outcome, the trajectory of their lives. He says, look, the things these guys are doing, even though they profess the faith... Even though they dwell in your midst, they're walking in at least a visible sense with you, but their lives are radically different. They're not pursuing self-sacrifice. They're pursuing self-indulgence. Their God is their belly, and their end is destruction. It's not going to work out well for them. If you're following them, don't. If these are the people who are showing you what it's like to be religious, the people who can barely be bothered to do religious things, The people who profess Christ with their lips and their songs, but rarely with their hands and their feet and their eyes and their actions and choices. Stop following them. The outcome of that walk will not go in a direction that you want to go. Stop following them. Bad doctrines can mess up a church. Earlier on in chapter 3... Paul talked about that. Remember, he's always battling against the Judaizers, those who totally upended grace and works, who made works the basis of salvation. He hated those who would take the gospel of faith and attempt to break it across their knee. He was always dealing with those who were messing up doctrine. But it's not just doctrine. It's not just orthodoxy that's important. Orthopraxy, the practice and the outworking of our faith also matters. And he says, dear heavens, you've got to think on this. It's not just what you believe up here, but how does what you believe up here manifest itself in the work of your hands, in the words that come out of your mouth, and the work ethic you bring to everything in the world around you? How does that which you profess and believe affect your choices? And he says that many walk, many walk in ways that don't conform with what they believe. Many walk in ways that don't conform with that which they've proclaimed to be true. This is a modern-day plague. They talk about pandemics. If there's a spiritual pandemic, I think it's this. It's easy to come to church and just sing. It is. It's fun. We enjoy this. What's difficult is, say, Thursday morning or Thursday evening or Friday or Tuesday, what have you, making actions, especially in the witness of others, especially when it's difficult to conform to that which you profess and sang about on Sunday. And Paul here says many are doing this, many walk. But they're enemies of the cross of Christ. You know, if you had a marathon, if you were to look down, like you had a drone, you know, 1,000, 2,000 feet up or whatnot, and you're looking down at the marathon, it looks like a sea of humanity all pressing in the one direction. You look down at the marathon runners, it just looks like a wall of people, and they're all moving, generally speaking, in the right direction. But you know what? If you go up closer, you'll find that not everyone is doing so. There are those who are going the wrong direction, there are those who are running sideways, there are those who aren't running at all, there are those at the concession, at the snack bar, there are those who are pushing and shoving others, there are those whose walk is not that good, who have no chance of winning this race or even finishing in the top 10, 20, 50, 80%. There are those. In the same way, in the same way, in the greater visible body of Christ, Remember, there's a difference between the visible body of Christ and the invisible body of Christ. The visible body of Christ is everything you see that looks vaguely Christian, vaguely church-like. It's every church, anyone who proclaims the name of Christ would say they're part of the visible body. But not all in the visible body of Christ are actually part of the true body of Christ, the invisible body. In the same way in Israel, not all those who were of Israel were God's people. Broadly speaking, they were part of God's chosen people, and not yet every Israelite was saved. We know this because... Think of the outcome of the Pharisees. Whatever the case, there are those in the visible body, the visible body of Christ around the world this day, whose walk, such as it is, may bear the hallmarks and some of the words and phrases and songs of Christendom, but whose walk is illusory. It's false. It's a facade. And in all actuality, the God who knows the hearts of men knows them to be not his children, but yet his enemies. Wolves among the sheep. It was true throughout the epistles. You know, the number one warnings that Paul and Peter and the others gave, even Christ himself gave, it was never about Rome. You never saw, like, Paul freaking out about Rome in his letters to the Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians. It was never about the pagans. It was primarily, primarily, centrally, about false teachers and wolves that would come to the church. If it was true then, it's Certainly true now. Whatever the case is, that's what he's talking about when he calls out those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. He's not talking about the pagan Baal worshippers, Zeus worshippers, the people way on the outside, not even proclaiming Christ in any way, shape, or form. No one would have confused those as walking. Those who walk is not a reference to the atheist. Those who walk is a reference to those who appear through their outward actions to in some way, shape, or form be among the faithful, and yet who are not. Now, some commentators think in verses 18 and 19 that maybe Paul's still talking about the Judaizers and the legalists and the Pharisees. Most commentators, though, don't think that's the case. Most think that what Paul's done here is he's done talking about the Judaizers, and now he's talking about a more common heresy in his age and in ours, and that's a an heresy that sometimes is referred to by theologians as antinomianism. In other words, those who are against the law, those who know that God has decrees and a plan and a will for how they should live and who really don't think it's necessary, who honestly just think that you can be a carnal Christian, you can write the name on the back of the Bible, you can profess something once at some point, point, you can live however you want to live. Well, such ones... Will do what? They'll live according to their belly, their wants, their whims. They'll prioritize the things of the world around them. And they'll denigrate or limit the things of God. In verse 18, Paul says that these people, he says that they're enemies of the cross. Now, think about that phrasing for a moment. He's not saying they're enemies of God. That would be more readily understandable. He's not saying they're enemies of Jesus. Again, that would be readily understandable. He says they're enemies of the cross. Now, what is the cross a symbol of? sacrifice. With that said, enemies of the cross aren't into sacrifice, they're into indulgence. Self-sacrifice is not what they're all about. Fulfilling the wants the desires of the flesh is their great goal. Enemies of the cross of Christ are not just enemies of Christ, but of the sacrificial approach and mindset that he modeled. They are those who want to claim Christ's salvation, who want that insurance policy against death, but don't want to live don't want to live in a way that reflects their Savior. An example is in Matthew 7, Christ is talking about the broad and the narrow path, the broad and narrow door. He says, look, there are many, lots, just scads of people who are professing the name of Christ with their lips and their songs and things like that. There are many who are doing that and they think that they are all going through the narrow door, but you want to know the ones are going through the narrow door, you can assess them on the basis of whether they are living in the narrow way. By your fruits you shall know them, he says in the same chapter. The point is this. If you are a Christian, you will live in a Christ-like fashion. Your choices will reflect your faith. Now, your choices don't save you, absolutely not, but your choices reflect that you are saved. Now, let me ask you a question, especially of our young people this morning. Have you ever known teens or fellow youth? Who claim to love Jesus? on you know, fire for Jesus? That's a phrase you often hear at youth events and like, oh, fire for Jesus. I'm a radical Christian. Have you known anyone to say that? And yet, as you analyze the choices and the things they do and listen and watch and say and all that, you say, "Dear heavens, whatever this on fire looks like, I don't want any part of it, because what it apparently translates to in your walk and your choices is the most unchrist-like carnal stuff imaginable. There's those who will proclaim anything with zeal and fervor and yet don't act accordingly. And Paul says, look, there has to be a marriage between what you say and believe and the choices that you're making. And if your walk in no way reflects your faith, then it's time to analyze your faith. It's time to look and say, what is it that I believe in? whatever the case is, Paul says those who don't, those who continue to walk in the broad path, in the broad way, and think they're going through the narrow door, he says, "Eh." he says, their end is destruction. They don't know it yet. In the marathon race, it looks like everyone's going the same direction. It looks like from afar, everyone's going to get to the finish line. Those of you who run marathons, I have not, by the way. (laughs) Shocker. Those of you who run marathons, you know that not everyone finishes. At the start, it looks promising. Everyone's moving and grooving and they're heading in the same direction and there's excitement in the air. If you go to the line, the finish line, and look back at how many people actually end up crossing, it's not everyone who started. This is a picture of what Paul saying here. Many get distracted. Many fall down. Many run to the concession stand, you know, 0.5 miles they're in. In the same way, spiritually speaking, many, many will profess certain things, but their minds have never departed this earth. Their minds and their hearts and their affections are satisfied and satiated by earthly things. Paul says, don't be fooled when that happens. He says, don't be fooled. Not everyone who has a song on their heart and a smile on their lips, not everyone who is in a church pew even this very morning necessarily is of the body of Christ. And he says, don't be fooled. Some, in fact he says many, many are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, the gods their belly, the glories is their shame. They set their mind on earthly things. All right, let's look at verses 20 and 21. At this point, Paul is going from the bad example to a good example. He's going from dire warnings to the greatest news we could have. Here verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship, ours, those of the kingdom of God, our citizenship is in heaven. "...from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself." There is a lot that could stand out in these two verses. What stands out to me immediately is Paul's use of the word citizen. He says in verse 20, "...our citizenship is in heaven." Again, there's a lot of words he could use. Our hope is in heaven, our future is in heaven, that's not the word he uses. Our citizen, citizenship is in heaven. Now the Apostle Paul, he was a citizen, in an earthly sense he was a citizen of where? Rome. He was a citizen of Rome. Now Paul had found over the years that being a citizen of Rome gave him a great many privileges As a citizen of the empire, he was entitled to a set of very specific rights that did not apply equally to everybody. There was those in Roman colonies who wished they were Roman citizens because then they could vote, they could act in courts. There was all manner of things that were beneficial to a citizen that if you did not have, made your life immeasurably tougher. So there was all manner of things about being a citizen of Rome that gave you rights and obligations that others simply did not have. And even the lowliest of citizens in the Roman Empire was worlds above the wealthy aristocrat who was not a citizen in a conquered part of the empire. To be a Roman citizen, this was your identity. Well, when Paul says we're citizens of heaven, he's doing it against that cultural backdrop. He knew the word he chose, and he chose it deliberately. And He says, look, we are citizens of someplace better. We have rights and obligations to a kingdom that transcends all other kingdoms. Whatever citizenship we have here on earth pales to the citizenship and standing we have there. Now, where did Paul get that idea? Is this just Paul's words? Well, of course not. You see this elsewhere, and you see it in particular in Christ's own words in a number of places, including John 18. John 18, in the red letter print, Jesus himself says this. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. That's not to say he didn't reign or rule over it, but his kingdom and his throne wasn't here. He says, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Now, does Christ reign and rule over all creation? Yes, absolutely. And yet, his throne, should you seek it out, you would not find it in Jerusalem. You would not find it nestled in any alcove, in any place, in any palace here on earth. His throne is not here. His throne is not nestled on a fallen planet that's destined for fire. That's not where he makes his eternal habitat. Conversely, our king says, I have a heavenly kingdom that transcends the here and now. Elsewhere in scripture, we see that this is where his throne is in heaven and the earth. What we see around us, this is his footstool. Our Lord has a heavenly kingdom, and the good news of the gospel is this that from that heavenly kingdom and from that throne, he came down to us and to ours. He came down from a throne. He was born in a manger and he went to a cross. He came down from that high estate, from that glorious kingdom to this fallen place. Why? Rescue mission. Rescue mission to save, to redeem, to make possible your union with him there. Remember the night of his betrayal, he tells his disciples this. He says, in my father's house, there's many mansions. He's talking about the kingdom. His his saints, his disciples, his apostles, they're freaked out. They're anxious. They're worried. All they can see is the horizontal. And in a moment of greatest anxiety, he cups their chin. He says, look up there. He says, in my father's house. It's almost like he pointed up, in my father's house, there are many mansions. I don't know what that looks like, but it sounds pretty good. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there. I'm going to prepare a place for you there. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come back here. I will come back in order to take those that I love, to take those I've called, to take those that are brothers and sisters in the faith, to take them with me that where I am, you may be also. That's your future. Dear heavens, the amount of time you and I spend here, it's a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of eternity. The amount of time we spend here, it's nothing. If you had the eyes of eternity, if you had the ability to see time for what it is and the eternity yet to come, you would look at the here and now and go, Dear heavens, why would I prioritize so much, so much of the dust in this world of clay when I could be focused on that which is golden? Paul, Jesus, Peter, everyone in Scripture wanted to raise our gaze. And that can be hard because there's so many things that distract us in the here and now, and yet it's important. Earlier, Jordan, he read about Abraham. And Abraham, as you know, Abraham was a nomad. It's been said that the only ground he ever owned at the end of his days was the burial plot in which he was laid. Abraham, centuries before Paul, knew as he looked around that this world is not all it's cracked up to be. Abraham knew that there was a better place. And in Hebrews 11 we read that he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. When well, you're talking about Abraham and the old, Paul and the new, the saints that we love in the scripture, they took the truths that we're discussing today, they acted on it. They acted accordingly. They made decisions and their finances and the choices they made, where they lived, what they did, vocations, all that stuff. They made decisions that reflected what they believed to be true. One other example is Peter. In 1 Peter 2, the Apostle Peter, he's writing to those in the early church. He says, dear friends, he says, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, to abstain from sinful desires that come from the fallen flesh that work to assault and attack the soul of man. He says, I warn you about this. Your aliens, You're sojourners here, keep your eyes up. This morning, is that your approach? This morning, are you living and acting as if you're just deployed, to use a military term, just deployed here for a short amount of time, or have you fallen so in love with the place in which you're deployed that this is now your kingdom? You've forgotten that glorious kingdom that sent you in order to adopt the practices and faith of that which you've been sent. Christian, have you forgotten where your home really is? Or have you never really considered it? Christian? have you forsaken your eternal flag and standard in order to pick up the standard of this world? There was an example that came to mind as I was trying to figure out how to wrap up this sermon. When I was younger, third or fourth grade, we went to a rural petting zoo. I think it was a simple, small place where the teachers figured they could keep an eye on everyone. But there was one thing in particular that stands out all these years later. There was a pen, and within it was a single animal. It was the largest pig I'd ever seen. At that point, I'd never been to a county fair, so I didn't know how big these things could get. It was huge, though. This pig was tremendous. Now, all the kids were looking at this because we'd never seen anything quite like this. I mean, we'd seen the chickens and the sheep. This pig was so massive, it got our attention. We are looking at this. We are transfixed by this thing. But as we all, you know, trying to get the pig, you know, come on over, because, you know, whenever you go to these sort of petting zoos, you got the little corn or the little alfalfa pellet you're trying to feed. So everyone's trying to get this pig to come on over. The pig's head is buried in the trough. The pig's head is buried in the trough and no matter what Tysmith's yelling, no matter what we did, you could not get this pig to move an inch. Maybe his eyes would dart up for a moment but his face was buried in the trough before him. This is an accurate depiction of the spiritual trough that is around us. For some of us, we're so fixated on things here. For some of us, we're so fixated on the trough the buffet of options, fallen sinful options in most cases, that the world has presented before us. Our heads are so buried in that, that no matter what God, church, friends, family might do to try to entice us to look up, sometimes we're so fixated on these things, the shiny things of the world around us, that we can't be bothered to pursue something different, something better, something healthy. Well, it's those sorts of people that Paul... His warning in today's text. Whose God is their belly rather than the God of heaven. You and I were not made for the trough. The Apostle Paul, at the very end of his days, he said this. He says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. The time my departure is at hand. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. This is not a man, through his words or his actions whose head and face is buried in the trough of this world. This was a man who was focused on eternity. This was a man who knew that his citizenship, his home, was there. And because of that, while he was here, while he was on deployment, so to speak, he never forgot his destination, he never forgot his king. And so he raised that king's banner every day, every word here on earth. Are you and I citizens of heaven? And if we are, if so, don't take your eyes off of it. Always be homeward bound. Always be looked to that kingdom. Praise God that he has called us to a calling so high and to a destination so grand. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.